Hello and welcome to episode 115 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. I'm your host, Peter Alegi. And our very special guest today is Dr. Elcinda Honwana. Dr. Onwana is Interregional Advisor on Social Development Policy at the United Nations Department of Economic and Social Affairs. Prior to joining the UN in that capacity, she was a visiting professor of anthropology and international development at the Open University, where she held a chair in international development from 2005 to 2010. She has also worked as a program director at the Social Science Research Council in New York and a program officer at the UN Office of the Special Representative for Children and Armed Conflict. She has taught anthropology at the New School in New York and also at the University of Cape Town. Her latest books include Youth and Revolution in Tunisia, published in 2013, and The Time of Youth, Work, Social Change, and Politics in Africa, 2012. She has published other books such as Child Soldiers in Africa and Living Spirits, Modern Traditions, Spirit Possession and Post-War Healing in Southern Mozambique, which came out in 2003. Professor Onwana sat on the boards of the Council for the Development of Social Research in Africa, or CODESRIA, and the African Studies Association in the United States. She is a member of editorial boards of the African Sociological Review, the Journal for Higher Education in Africa, and an editor of the African Arguments book series with Zed Books. Dr. Onwana is speaking in her personal capacity and not representing the perspective of the United Nations in any way. We recorded this interview at the annual meeting of the African Studies Association in Chicago, Illinois, in November of 2017. Welcome, Dr. Onwana. Thank you. So growing up in Mozambique, did you always want to be an academic? Or was there a sudden revelation or maybe a mentor who inspired you? Well, really, I no, I didn't think I wanted to be an academic. But one thing that I knew is that I would uh, do something in the field of humanities and social sciences because I was never a good math student or physics student. That makes two so, words. yes. <laughs> and I always loved history, literature, and geography, humanities, and um, arts as well. Uh, I loved to write. I loved to um, even write poetry. But I also loved history, and I was always a very good student. Um, in uh, in uh, uh, social sciences and uh, humanities, um, but I know I didn't think I wanted to be a scholar. Maybe I thought I would be I would be teaching history because my first um, uh, degree was in teachers training, history mm-hmm. and geography. Uh, but then I got a job at the Ministry of um, Culture in Mozambique that was looking at issues of cultural heritage. And we had some funding at the ministry from the French uh, corporation. And so the French government sent some anthropologists down to Mozambique to help us set up this Institute for Cultural Heritage. And amongst those anthropologists, Claude Meyassou came. 
And so I met Mayasu, mm-hmm. spent a bit of time with him, went to the field with him, and uh, and I, I kind of got interested in anthropology. And uh, we started d- developing some projects at this Cultural Heritage Center on cultural issues, and then I became the research uh, um, coordinator. And uh, you know, I just had my first degree in history and geography, and we started doing that. And then they suggested that we should be trained to do better research, mm-hmm. and that's when I got a scholarship to go to France to do sociology at the time with, a, with a sociology and anthropology, but my degree was in sociology. Um, and from there, yeah, I, I became an anthropologist, and I did a master's in anthropology in England and a doctorate, and that's how I became a, a scholar. Yeah. I never thought Claude Mayassou was going to <laughs> come up. You see the things you learn. Yeah, Claude Mayassou and Pierre-Philippe Ray, all the kind of leftist uh, <laughs> uh, 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 French uh, anthropologists at the time. And yesterday here at the African Studies Association annual meeting in Chicago, you gave the African Studies Review Distinguished Lecture titled Youth Struggles from the Arab Spring to Black Lives Matter and beyond. It was a fascinating talk. I enjoyed it very much. I learned a lot from it. Uh, in the talk, you discussed this concept of weighthood, this kind of state of limbo between kind of adolescence and adulthood. And you spoke about how this informs how young people you know, are just trying to make it, uh, eke out a living, just get by. Can you tell us more about this concept of weighthood and its layers and, and how it connects the experiences, not just of African youth, um, but youth in the global south and beyond, as you put it. Yeah. Well, this concept of weightwood came up as I was doing research for my book, uh, The Time of Youth. Uh, and the research was done between 2008 and 2011. The book came out in 2012. And I did work with young people in Mozambique in uh, Senegal, in South Africa, and in Tunisia. And um, initially, the book was about uh, ideas about citizenship, engagement, what did young people think about their own situation, their countries. And as I was developing the research, I noticed that young people were saying that they were experiencing serious difficulties to becoming independent, to kind of uh, developing their Uh, own lives and uh, uh, realizing their aspirations, and uh, that the the future looked very bleak for them. They didn't have uh, 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 prospects of a decent future, etc. And I worked with young people from different uh, uh, social groups, from different classes, gender, young people in the periphery of urban areas, in the urban areas, and also in some rural areas. And I found that at different degrees, etc., they all shared that experience of having trouble making the transition into adult life and becoming fully-fledged citizens, able to take care of themselves and start their own lives, family, or whatever their choice was. And uh, as I tried to kind of make sense of that within the broader context of the book, I came uh, about this uh, notion of weighthood that was used initially in the Middle East by uh, a couple of scholars, uh, Diane Singerman and others. 
Um, I found it interesting because I was looking for something that would cover that period mm -hmm. of limbo that, and I found weighthood, that's an interesting term. And uh, uh, as, more, as much as I read um, their, uh, their writings, I felt that my work could bring something new to that and could push the concept a little bit further because they were looking at weighthood as a static period, as a period in which, you know, you're waiting for something to happen and kind of an idle period. But I liked the fact that it had this kind of waiting to become more than you are now, but it's an awaiting process that you are proactive and trying to find the solutions for that, mm -hmm. for your problems. And so I, th I liked the, the, the term, weighthood, but I wanted to infuse this dynamic and non-passive yes. notion to it. And, uh, and that's why I was very fortunate to capture those expressions of uh, uh, making do, hick out a living, and uh, uh, we, we, we kind of uh, getting by, but getting by in the sense that, you know, trying to find opportunities here and there to, uh, um, uh, to, to leave, really. And what was interesting is that although I came across young people doing, uh, uh, going through so much adversity and with difficult lives, people were smiling, people were going about their lives and uh, 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 joining uh, uh, concerts and singing. So life, life was going on. You had to sit and talk to people and go about a day with them mm -hmm. to see the hardship that these uh, young people, uh, men and women, uh, were going through. So that's really what the notion of weighthood is, is this, the state, the institutions are not supporting young people to make that transition, but they finding ways in the margins of the system to uh, go about with their lives. And uh, they invent, they create, they improvise. Um, and so it's a very resourceful and creative uh, uh, period as well. One of the things that you mentioned in the talk, and there was also in your recent book, uh, is this kind of new language that youth are using to articulate this creativity, this agency, and of course the digital technologies, you know, uh, the, the WhatsApp and Snapchat and Twitter, Instagram and all the other ones, Facebook. So can you elaborate on these two phenomena, how young people are interpreting these struggles that they're going through, but also, you know, the beautiful things in their life that they're still able to, to create for themselves and how technology uh, and the digital space fits into that? Yeah. Well, I think this generation is really savvy when it comes to social media and internet. And I think that's where they communicate, that's where they get their news from, that's where they exchange. And uh, although in, even in Africa, in the most remote areas, young people have cell phones and they can use WhatsApp and uh, Snapchat and etc. And I think it does two things. On the, wider, on the one hand, it connects them to the wider world, to the global world in instantaneously because you know, it's kind of in real time. Mm -hmm. they, they get to know what is happening in the US, in China, in, in Europe, uh, in Australia, in New Zealand, 
uh, you know, in almost in real time. But what it, that does also, it allows them to compare their own existence with what is going on in the rest of the world. And so it makes that this, the aspirations of young people in the most remote areas of the world are different from the aspirations that the previous generation had because they are exposed to a lot more through this kind of revolution of technology, um, being able to communicate, being able to see, being able to uh, uh, listen, uh, um, and being able to engage uh, uh, in such a, a, a speed. Um, and so I think that connects young people differently. This generation is connected in ways that previous generations were not. And it allows also them to exchange, uh, it allows them to mobilize, uh, it allows them to, um, you know, also rejoice in the, the common things that they share. Um, for example, you, I was in Nampula, uh, a province in Mozambique and in a very remote district, and there was this young man, maybe he wasn't even 18, I was talking to him and he was selling some stuff and I was asking questions and he says, no, I'm not going to do this for long. I want to follow Jay-Z's advice, get rich or die trying. So I thought, you know, Jay-Z is resonating in this little district because he has been watching the videos, he has been singing the songs, he knows the lyrics, etc. So it's that interconnectedness that makes this generation special so to speak, in that sense. Now, a distinguishing feature of your research is your oral interviewing. You just mentioned a conversation that you just had on the side of the road with this young man in, in Mozambique. I really liked in your book about child soldiers in Mozambique and Angola how you, you know, really profoundly humanized these awful and you know, pretty traumatic experiences that uh, boys and girls had during the wars. Uh, but also your conversations with the young Tunisians in your book on youth and revolution in, in Tunisia, you're going around cities and towns and you're interviewing people of different classes from different regions. Um, and then the, the your other book where you had the interviews with the uh, minibus uh, drivers. The Shapa drivers. The Shapa yeah. drivers, you know, with Matatus in Kenya, in Kenya Trotros in yeah. Ghana and so on. Uh, the, the Senegalese women's relationships with the sugar daddies. You know, you're really getting at you know, the, 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 the substance of life for, for uh, people who are not well represented often in uh, scholarship and in sort of mainstream media. So can you tell us a little about your, your uh, art of interviewing perhaps, but also kind of the, the ethical dilemmas that you have to face, particularly when you're dealing with people living at the margins who are vulnerable and of course in the case of the child soldiers who've been deeply traumatized by these experiences? Because that's something that I think a lot of researchers have difficulty with, and uh, I think they would be quite interested to hear what, what you have to say about this thorny yeah. issue. Sure. Well, let's start with the child soldiers, because I think that is a very particular group. Mm. And it wasn't easy for me to get into um, the interviews with the child soldiers, although I following my previous work on Mozambique on, uh, on the war and the impact of the war on, the on vulnerable groups, 
I had some interest into focusing more specifically in, in child soldiers. I was lucky to have been hired by a couple of NGOs to help them look at the cultural aspects of the reintegration of child soldiers. Because in my previous work, I had talked about rituals of reintegration that populations affected by war were using, traditional rituals of coming together, etc. And so some people in, in the NGO world had read that and found it intriguing. So they thought, you know, for children, how would we approach that? So there were two parts on that. One was that I was talking to communities and trying to understand how were children taken out of those communities. And then once those organizations had groups of child soldiers that were returning home and they were cantonment centers and then they had to take them to the villages, I would be part of the group that would take them to the home, mm -hmm. sit them with the sit there with the families, mm -hmm. observe the rituals of uh, welcoming the children home. Because for some cultures, those children were polluted by war, mm -hmm. so there were some kind of cleansing rituals. So I would first get acquainted with the community, with the family, before engaging directly uh, with the young uh, soldiers. Some of them came back as young men, you know, 17, 18. Um, and so I think the NGO facilitated mm -hmm. that, which, which would be more difficult for me to kind of just jump in and, uh, yeah. But th there was also a problem that I had to navigate associated with that, is that because I came with the NGO, there were certain expectations that talking to me, there was some kind of benefit associated with it, in the sense that NGOs were providing support, etc. And I was with the NGO, but I had to explain that I was not from the NGO. I was uh, mm -hmm. supporting uh, uh, the process, but I also was a scholar, and I was going to write a book, mm -hmm. and they had a choice of talking or not talking to me. And, uh, and so um, uh, it, it, it was a little tricky, and I, I discussed that in the book. Uh, in the in the um, in the in introduction, when I discuss methodology and how to relate to, and I discuss that dilemma, um, and I think in the beginning people would kind of talk to me, and also those interviews. I must say, it's not interviews that you do once; you have to keep going back. And I think that is that trust and that understanding that gets developed with. And uh, while in the beginning people might have perceived me as an NGO person. As I continue the relationship, they mm. would have seen me for what I was, uh, you know, there mm. for, and um, but I would always ask permission if they were happy to have uh, to contribute to the book, and it was to tell the story, and uh, and many of them were. There were a couple of cases that you know they didn't want to really uh, talk about it, but also you would be able to judge and how open, how forthcoming people would be, and if it, it would be something to follow up or not. And so um, that, that, um, that was um, in relation to, to, the, to the child soldiers. 
and and the fact that we were talking to them in the community or in the transit centers also you know had to be uh, taken into account um, and also although some of the uh, the child soldiers were happy to get home I must say that some of them felt that going home they were going back into tradition. They welcomed the ritual, but at the same time they didn't want to be trapped in the village. Mm -hmm. And they had, a, they had had so much power with a gun in their hands. They could have the girls they wanted, they could loot shops, they could do things. And so some of them went through those rituals, but then escaped again and they went into urban areas and, uh, you know, and just became uh, uh, Street, uh, uh, street children, or did some some were hired by network criminal networks because they knew how to manipulate guns. So they tried to fend for themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, they didn't kind of uh, go back and stay there. But the other interviews with uh, with uh, with young people, the 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 methodology was was. Um, you know, the same, the kind of uh, the training that we have as anthropologists for participant observation and kind of getting to know um, your uh, uh, interlocutors, your informants. And usually I use the method of trying to hang out with young people. Um, and I always had teams of um, researchers working with me locally in each country who were also young and had their networks. And so it was a kind of snowballing. I'll go through networks of networks and they would introduce me. And sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't work and you had to find another way, etc. But yeah. being Mozambican, I think, put you in an interesting situation, did it not? Uh, particularly in the part of the, the book that you're researching well, in, in, in Mozambique. Well, in Mozambique, yes. In uh, South Africa, also I lived in South your Africa. Your positionality, yes. Exactly. I lived in South Africa, uh, taught at UCT, and, uh, you know, I, I understood well the countries. I knew some of the local languages in Mozambique. Not And in South Africa, yes, one of the languages is common. But... Um, in other places, uh, and in, in Senegal also, I speak well French. I don't speak Wolof, but some of mm -hmm. of my researchers that were with me were good all uh, were Wolof na uh, speakers, native speakers. But I think the greatest difficulty I had was in Tunisia, because when I went to Tunisia, I was based in New York City, and I spoke to some colleagues at the university that connected me to some networks. And the word that got there was that there's this American researcher coming to do some work. She's coming from America, so they associated coming from New York. So first they were expecting an American. And then I said, no, I'm not American. I'm from the South. I'm from Africa. And I'm from Mozambique. So I said, oh, okay. And uh, you. So it took some time for me to... Uh, um, blend in, and um, and uh, when young people started taking me home, especially in the most remote areas of Tunisia, that you know they would say, "Oh, the food in the restaurants is not good." I'll ask my mom to make a mishui or make a tagine, 
and also because the mothers and the fathers were curious about this woman from Mozambique that is here in the village, small places. So they would cook and very, very nice and welcome. But I would feel that the positions would be reversed because they were interviewing me and asking me, oh, where do you come from? What kind of food do you eat there? Do you eat the same things we eat? And tell me about your parents. Tell me, how come you are in the United States? Where did you study? And, you know, all those questions. And, and I would be comfortable asking them, and then I, my turn would come, uh, mm. or being asked, and then asked as well. And so, in a way, you navigate depending on the situation, etc. But in terms of uh, ethically, you know, there is the consent. Uh, not in all cases I had kind of written consent, but in the beginning of the interview, I would uh, uh, ask uh, people uh, if they wanted to appear in the book. Uh, I decided that I would never use people's mm -hmm. real names. I would uh, kind of uh, put uh, uh, pseudonames. Um, in some cases, people wanted. I can I have my name, <laughs> my name in there. And I said, no, as a principal, I don't put names. Mm. But you will recognize yourselves in the story and the, the, the context. But other people might not be able to recognize you because you know what we talked about. And, um, and uh, some people wanted to make sure that they, they would be there in the book. But of course, I, I couldn't put everyone, every single interview in the book. Um, but um, yeah, that's true. Um, it it uh, it depends on uh, on the context, on the circumstance, and uh, I must say also that I try uh, not to kind of just uh, appear, uh, you know, kind of drop in. But I always try to create local networks within the countries that I work with. In Tunisia, I had uh, the University of Tunis, and I talked to colleagues there that would kind of uh, give me directions and where to go, how to, um, and also try to identify young researchers that would uh, help me. Uh, but I also made contact with a network of uh, Maison de Jeunes. Maison de Jeunes is mm -hmm. this youth clubs. So um, through the youth clubs, uh, association or the body that uh, I had uh, access to visiting a number of youth clubs and observing them in their activities. I had interviews with the directors of youth clubs. I had interviews with uh, theater groups. I had interviews with journalists and others, and also with uh, with young people across uh, across the country. Yeah. Well, that's uh, extremely valuable advice and really extraordinary reflections. And you've covered so many different regions uh, and different time periods. And perhaps to bring the conversation uh, to a close, we can return to the conclusion of your distinguished lecture that you gave yesterday. It struck me, you know, you, you highlighted so many of the difficulties that young people have uh, in African countries, in the global south and elsewhere, including the Black Lives Matter movement that you spoke eloquently about. And you, you know, you pointed out we live in a kind of global neoliberal world order where the one percent uh, rule uh, that keeps young, a lot of young people locked out. What inspires your hopeful vision? You concluded on a on a on a upbeat note, and especially you pointed to young people's capacity to be a force for positive change in this upside down world of ours. 
Um, what inspires this hopeful vision? Well, I think being there in the, on, on, in the field, in the, on the ground with young people, listening to them and seeing, you know, that's what I was saying. They are very hopeful. You know, they're going through so much, but they are fighting. They are fending for themselves. They are criticizing where they can. And there is so much energy that often is not kind of translated in what we see in the media or, uh, you know, there are sporadic moments. But there is a lot of energy. Young people understand their predicament. They understand the situation they're in. And I think, you know, the world is young. The majority of the world population, and especially in the South, in the global South, is young. So these are the, 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 the future leaders, citizens, or whatever, of the, of the future. The, the world, our world, is in their hands. And so they have to figure out. It reminds me of Fanon's uh, uh, quote. Each generation out of relative opacity has to find its own mission and either fulfill it or betray mm -hmm. it. And I think from the indications that I got throughout my research is that they are looking for ways of fulfilling it. And uh, it will take time. It's not an easy task because they are dealing with obstacles as they go in through the process. But they are, they are energized, they are, and especially after 2011, I think the, the Arab Spring marked this kind of new wave, we have seen more and more uh, engagement. And I think also with the, with the um, online social networks, etc., young people are talking, they are mobilizing. They, and also there is something interesting is that they are looking at the world in a slightly different way uh, for example, this whole thing about the horizontal networks, anti-hierarchical, anti-authoritarianism, uh, the way they organize themselves and they don't want anyone to be the leader and, you know, this kind of verticality of the political process. They are, they want something else, but what is it? And I think they're grappling with it. And we are all waiting, you know, what, I think the world is in transition. Something is brewing, but I don't know what. But I, I think if something is going to happen, this is the generation that is going to make that change. That's a great note to end on. Thank you very much Thank for you. speaking with us, Dr. Onwana. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Africa Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Digital Humanities and Social Sciences, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix Digital Media Lab. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit our website at afropod.aodl.org. The podcast is also available on iTunes. You can also send us email at africa.podcast.com at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening. <laughs>